All right, let's have a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for the reality of yourself. And we thank you so much that we can come before you with worship and with praise, and we can come with hearts that are attentive to learn. And Lord, we just pray that you will teach us these things. Lord, we, we have so much to learn. We, we confess that. And we are so easily caught up in those things that are uh, contrary to the very name by which we're called. I would just pray, Lord, that you would give to us, even tonight, a, a very special touch from yourself in terms of instruction and learning about a very important matter. Help us, Lord, to be, to be faithful servants of yours, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're presently in this series talking about some of those things that are, there we are, some of those things that are carried over really from our old life. They don't belong in the Christian's life. The Christian's perspective and uh, his point of view, his, his point of reference um, is really quite different than the unbeliever. And yet, uh, so very often, we find ourselves uh, doing those things almost habitually uh, that really are a part of the unbeliever's life. And because our world is so influenced by the unbelieving world, uh, these things many times seem rather common and uh, seem as though they are very much a part of our lives, even to the place that we are loath to uh, be done with them, even though we can see clear evidence in Scripture uh, that they, they should not be a part of our life. And so we, uh, we talked uh, uh, about pride, and we talked about presumption, and we have talked, about, talked last week about the matter of, of being perfunctory and the way that we, we do our, our work for the Lord, even our, our worship of the Lord. And tonight... I want to talk about another area, uh, one with which you're all familiar. Probably it's one of the most familiar of all of the things we'll talk about in this little series. It's paraphernalia. Um, you might prefer the term things, but really uh, one of the things that happens when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as personal savior is that you're brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're brought from the merely temporal things which require things in order to find joy and happiness to a spiritual realm where the things that are most important and vital are really non-material. They're not the material things of life. Uh, material things of life are necessary. Uh, they're, they're, you need uh, money to buy groceries. Uh, you need the groceries to eat. Uh, you've got to eat to survive. Uh, all of these things are, are interrelated, interlocked. And um, we have to have things. But the tragedy is uh, that instead of having 
things, the unbeliever things have them. And what happens when you accept Christ as Savior is this ought to be transferred. Things ought to become utilitarian. They ought to be things that can be used always with an object to non-material things, always with an object to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or what you put on, you're always to do it with the signature of Christ at the bottom of the page. What you do with the material things of life should have his name underlining it. And whatever you do, you are to do it to the glory of God. Your whole life is intended to be a life of worship. And the way you handle things will largely determine how you worship God. You're to come to him with empty hands. You're to come to him offering yourself and offering all that you have or could ever hope to be in order that he might be glorified. He wants us to even dedicate the members of our body and to present them to him as a living sacrifice. And yet so often we are so cluttered up with things that we never can shake loose and find that reality and that relationship of worship and honoring God that he intends for us to have. Because the unbeliever does not look for his future in glory, he looks for it here. His perspective is that of the present, one of the descriptions of the false teachers and their cohorts in the third chapter of the book of Philippians. The Phillips paraphrase, this world is the limit of their horizon. It's all they can see. It's just this world. They cannot see beyond that. And yet in Scripture we're told that we're to look at the things which are not seen, for the things which are not seen are eternal. The things which are seen are temporary, temporal. We're told in Scripture that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. That's non-material and his righteousness. That's non-material. That's what you're to seek first. And all of these things, things will be added unto you. Things take a back seat. And the tragedy is that when a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, often there is not much of a transference. The things which held a grip on your life and caused you frustration and worry and unhappiness and uh, many times um, a, a fouling up of priorities, those things were carried right over into the new life. Uh, sometimes you would uh, almost wish that one of the conditions for uh, becoming a Christian was that you sell all you have, strip yourself bare, and start over. Because at least then we would have a chance of gaining perspective. Now that's, of course, my idea. God didn't think of it. So it must not be very good. God doesn't do that. Uh, although he did in sensing the tremendous grip that things had on the rich young ruler, he made a demand of him that he sell what he has and follow Christ. 
a condition which the rich young ruler could not meet. Why? Because Scripture says he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now why should that make him sorrowful? Everybody says that if a person has great possessions, he'll be happy. Here's a man who's sorrowful because he has great possessions. The tragedy was he suddenly saw that there, there was a dichotomy here. And that he had to choose, he had to make a clear choice as to whether to have things or have Christ. And in that kind of a situation, the man was unwilling to choose the best. Because he had what he believed was the necessary. And so, that's an illustration of what might happen were people forced to a choice in each case. Forced to give what they have away in order to become a Christian. You wouldn't have probably nearly as many people uh, that would be, as they call them in China, rice Christians. Became Christians so they could get the rice from the missionaries. And that's the only reason they became Christians. But God doesn't make that demand. He did on the rich young ruler. He does not make that demand of you. Rather, he asks that you bring over into the Christian life those things which you possess and recognize that a man's life does not consist of these things. They take last place. They're like the caboose that's drug along behind. They are not that important in the light of eternity. And if there is ever a conflict between what God wants you to do or something, you should readily shed the thing in order to do God's will. And if God should say to you as he did to the rich young ruler, the time is right, sell what you have, follow me. You should be willing without even a thought to get rid of that which you have. It's a great test when you lose something as to how important that was to you. Man, an income tax uh, collector, came to a man who was a very godly man. And uh, he said, on your income tax report, you said that you're an exceedingly rich man, but that none of your income is taxable. He said, absolutely, that's true. He said, I have a healthy, happy family. I have a wife that loves me, children that are obedient to me. And he went on and on and on, listing all of the things that were his assets. And the income tax collector closed his book when he had finished, and he said, Sir, you're absolutely right. You are a rich man, and none of these things are taxable. Well, how rich are you tonight? The scripture speaks of the riches and treasures that we have in Jesus Christ, the riches of so great a salvation, the riches of God's word. These are the kinds of riches that are non-taxable and more important than the things that we possess. Now, in order to kind of get a picture of this, let's look at several passages of scripture. First of all, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew, the sixth chapter, it says this, verse 31, do not be anxious. It's an aggressive aorist, they call that. 
In other words, don't, don't grow anxious. It's a progress that's being talked of here. It's a progressive thing. And the word anxious is the word merimanao, which means to be distracted in different directions, to be pulled in different directions, all right? Uh, it's the idea of distracting cares. Don't have distracting cares, saying, and here's what causes distracting cares, worrying about your diet, worrying about your, what you drink, worrying about your clothing. And then look at verse 32. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. The Gentiles are the equivalent of the pagans or the heathen in this particular case. All of these things. Notice the word things. All of these things. The Gentiles eagerly stretch afterward. The word, the word really is, is the same as a word that, that means to stretch at the tape at the end of a race. It's that last lunge, or as they call it, the kick. Uh, the last push of the race. Uh, they eagerly stretch after these things. They hanker after them. They long after them. It becomes their obsession. It becomes their goal. All you have to do is look around you and you see that. Everybody wants something more. Uh, Madison Avenue uh, hire people who have become skilled in how to make people discontent. They want to design a car so that your model will look old. Even though it still runs well, it looks old. Everything has new features. Uh, the computer market these days is wild, you know. I, uh, church has been looking at computers, you know, and we've got a bad system here, you know. The, the elders or the deacons approve a package for computer and then by the time the elders get to act on it, then that package is out of date. <laughs> and there's something better on the market for less money. So it goes back to the deacons, they make another proposal, and that's out of date. By One of the deacons leaned over to me at one of the deacons' meetings and said when the elders had rejected a particular package, and, and he said, well, he said, I'd reject it now too. I was in favor of it when it went <laughs> But you know, the, the fact is, there's always a new discovery, there's always a new wrinkle, there's always something new, there's always a new gadget. And the result is that, that people are reaching and reaching and reaching, and, and as they reach for that and they get a hold of the gold ring, they suddenly find out that there's a platinum one right ahead. You know, you, you catch up with the Joneses and they refinance. And uh, it, it happens all the time. That's the way the world plays the game. You know. As I look at it now, as a Christian, and beginning, beginning, beginning to learn some of this, when you stand back and take an objective look at the rat race out there, the merry-go-round of things and things and things, doesn't it make you glad that you're a Christian where those things do not hold priority? Ever get the notion, hey, stop the world. I want to get off. I got to get out of this rat race. Because the whole system is built around getting more, getting more, getting more. Well, the Gentiles eagerly seek them, but what about us? 
your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. God knows that you have need of these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, the Apostle Paul tapped a resource that helped him a whole lot in this area of paraphernalia. Philippians chapter 4, Paul uh, had rather mixed emotions as he spoke to these Philippian Christians. Um, they had, out of their poverty, been faithful in giving to him the very first church to give him missionary support. Antioch didn't give him support. They said, Paul, have fun making tents. Support yourself. We'll pray for you. And uh, these other churches that he touched, not just once, but twice, and then finally a third time at least, uh, churches like uh, those in Derby and in Lystra and in places like that, they didn't give him any giving. But on his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul received the Macedonian vision, spent a few days in Philippi, and then went to Thessalonica. And when the people in Philippi began to count their blessings, even though they were not wealthy by any means, they took up a collection and sent Paul a missionary offering, then followed it up with at least another, and then put to shame the very wealthy church of Corinth at a later time when they took an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. The people in, in uh, Philippi, in the Macedonian region, gave out of the midst of great poverty. They now had lost a lot because of their testimony for Jesus Christ. And out of the midst of their great poverty, uh, they gave to the poor in Jerusalem. I'll tell you, they set a tremendous example. They set the pace for Christian giving even today because they first of all gave themselves to the Lord and the more they gave themselves to the Lord, the more they began to shed things. As they evaluated in the light of eternity, they looked around and took inventory. And the inventory told them, I don't really need that. I don't really need that. I don't really need that. Now, it was this church that Paul is writing to here as he's there in a Roman prison cell. And um, these people sent their pastor, Epaphroditus, with a gift to the Apostle Paul. We have no idea how much the gift was, but we know that Paul was overwhelmed with a grateful heart because this gift had been provided. But when he's thanking them for it in the last chapter of his book, he, of course, has already said that Epaphroditus brought that gift at great risk of his own life. He took sick on that journey and almost died. The Lord, however, was gracious, and the gift arrived. And the Apostle Paul told the people that I'm, I'm sort of hung up between two things. First of all, I want you to understand that you can't make me happy. You can't make me content by giving me something. 
Now, it sounds almost ungrateful, but he is so concerned about this very thing we're talking about tonight, so concerned that this church, which has set a good example in this area, that they not lose that, that he tells them, not that I speak in respect of want. Don't think for a minute that I'm sitting here in my jail cell saying, I wonder where my next meal's coming from. I wonder where I'm going to get enough money. He actually at this time was in his own hired house. He had to pay rent in the prison. See? And the Apostle Paul had guards that were there and there were expenses involved and he couldn't make tents because he was a prisoner. And he says, I'm not sitting here biting my nails wondering where my next meal's coming from. I'm not worried about the rent. And I don't want you to think that I sit here worrying about that because I've learned something in my years as a believer in Jesus Christ. I've learned something. He says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to be full after a five-course meal. I've learned how to be hungry. When he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, in fastings oft. And those weren't voluntary fastings. The Apostle Paul missed a lot of meals because he was busy serving the Lord and because a lot of times he didn't have food on the table to eat. But the Apostle Paul said, that's not where my contentment comes. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, this is verse 12 of Philippians 4, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need, and I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. Now that's his preface to saying thank you for the gift. <laughs> Rather strange, but oh, what a lesson it is. Because you see, the strength for his contentment is Jesus Christ. A starving person, a person with no clothes on their back and no roof over their head. If they have Christ, my friends, they have everything that counts. And the secret of contentment is to learn, just to learn, in whatsoever state you are, wherever God has placed you, wherever He has put you, that you be content in that. That you not always be looking for the brass ring. That you not always be looking for something over the horizon. Old song my mother used to sing to me when I was a little boy. Bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain, the bear went over the mountain, see what he could see? He saw the other side of the mountain. He saw the other, that's it. And that's what everybody's looking for that far off peak. And they get there, and what is there? Just more peaks, more mountains, more hills. There's no way that you can find contentment over there. Always looking for a new job, always looking for something that's going to pay more, something that will get you more things so that you can be more distracted. Now listen. The Apostle Paul had learned simply to accept what God gave to him. But there also, in this passage, is the spoiler of contentment. And the spoiler of contentment 
is that little word want. He says, not that I speak of respect of, in respect of want. I got my want to fixed. My desire is for a city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God like Abraham. My desire is to walk with God like an Enoch. My want is God's will. First, last, and always, and at any cost. I don't want things. Things I see as necessary. Things I see as something that God sovereignly can supply as I need, need them. But things are only things. And they're very, very temporary. The desires, the goals of the old life are just carried over into the new life as excess baggage. And it's certain that you brought nothing into this world and you carry nothing out. No, no thing. No thing. Nothing is going to heaven with you. Nothing. You know, the thing that I think of as a parent, that I am writing my last will and testament on the soul of a child, which is something that is going to go into eternity. Things, never. Cars and houses and lands, never. God wants us to invest in our children, invest in eternity, invest in people because they are eternal, giving glory to God. Well, then Paul goes on from there, of course, and thanks them. And he says, nevertheless, you, you have done well. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not grateful. It's not that you didn't do a great thing. It's just that I want you to get the perspective straight. You've done well to share with me, koinonia, to fellowship with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone, and even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, got to keep that straight, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And, by the way, here's a promise for you. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Someone said one time that a move is roughly equivalent to a good fire as to its ability to get rid of junk. Well, I think we either need a move, a good fire, or we need to get our perspective straight when it comes to the matter of things. Years ago, it was my privilege to hear Rosalind Goforth whose husband Jonathan Goforth was well known, a well-known missionary in China. He was a tall, lean, lanky man, dressed always in Chinese garb, for he dressed the part with the natives. 
and uh, they lived the part as well rather than living in a missionary compound he insisted that he live among the people and uh, they had uh, a very crude uh, sort of like a hovel uh, there in the part of China where they were serving it was common um, kind of living in Africa we'd call it a grass hut it wasn't exactly that it was bamboo with uh, various uh, leaves on top this sort of thing it was very feeble very uh, very uh, precarious really um, they cooked uh, with a hole in the roof and uh, a fire uh, sort of like a charcoal broiler uh, but not nearly as fancy as our, our uh, charcoal broilers today. And they, they cooked on a sort of a screen-like affair over this fire. And again, in that kind of a dwelling, uh, there were often fires. Uh, Jonathan and Rosalind had only recently uh, come from uh, the United States where uh, they had been showered with many gifts on their upon their wedding uh, wedding gifts and uh, things uh, many of these things they left behind gave away to others because they would be excess baggage on the boat going to China and uh, yet there were some treasures in particular that were that were important to Rosalind especially and also Jonathan Goforth had his books um, those are the kinds of things that become tools in the ministry and uh, I suppose if there's anything that I would hate to lose it would be my books uh, and uh, that would be true of Jonathan as well though his books I'm sure were far fewer than most pastors today nevertheless they were all in the hut when the hut caught on fire and uh, Rosalind and Jonathan were both able to get out uh, without too much problem but by the time they got out with no modern facilities at all uh, they uh, were going to lose everything it was obvious the hut was a raging inferno and Rosalind would tell how she sat there trembling uh, partially because of the uh, relief from uh, getting out of the fire first of all but then a tear began to creep down her face as she thought of of all of that that was left inside everything they owned all of their clothes all of his books all of their wedding gifts all of the earthly possessions that they had and of course no insurance or hope of recovery ever and Jonathan Rosalind would say reached his long bony arm around my trembling shoulders patted my shoulder with his large hand and said that's all right dear they're only things they're only things if your house burned down tonight Is that the way you would feel? Oh, you say, wait, well, I've got so much more to lose than he did. <laughs> oh, really? You probably even have a little insurance. He didn't have any. 
No, it was everything with him. There was nothing to remain. There was nothing recoverable. No, he lost everything. But suppose that that would be possible with you as well. You lost everything. Could you say, that's all right. They're just things. It's very easy to find in a time like that or even an imaginary uh, supposing of something like this, it's very easy to find out what we really value. Just things? Or do we value something else? Hebrews chapter 13 gives us a perspective that most American Christians seldom identify with. Hebrews 13, in this great poo-pourri of, of Christian moral standards, the text that you love to quote is a part of this context here, in fact, in direct relationship to the very thing that we want to talk about. It talks about the love of the brethren in verse 1 and hospitality to strangers in verse 2 and remembering those in prison in verse 3 and having a quality marriage in verse 4 and letting your character be free. Notice now, let your character be free from the love of money being content with what you have. Now, in order to compensate for what you're willing to not have, the Lord gives us this verse that we love to quote. I don't know why we never quote the first part. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You've probably heard me say there are five negatives in that verse, each one heaping more negative upon it. He is saying, I will never, never, no, never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. And what he's saying, if he, we could just add this word, because this is the conclusion of the matter. I will never leave you, and that is enough. So you don't have to worry about what you're going to wear. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. Those are not matters for you to have distracting cares about. Now I hasten to say this. God makes it clear we ought to work. All right? The work ethic is as much a part of the Christian ethic as anything else. And you read that in the closing a chapter of, of the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a very clear thing. 2 Thessalonians deals with it again. There were some of these jokers that got so heavenly minded they were no earthly good. They thought, you know, uh, Christ is going to come any day and since that's true, I'm going to sit here and wait for him to come and I'm not going to do anything else. And Paul says that those kind of people shouldn't be allowed to go on welfare. If they don't work, they shouldn't eat. It's different if a person cannot work, cannot, disability of some sort or another. But he must not eat 
if he will not work. That's why you want to know my bias. I think that all of these people on welfare should be given work to do and should not be given welfare unless they either cannot work or they have a responsibility, for instance, a, a mother who has children to, to raise and no father to support, that, that would be an exception. But other than that, the, particularly the breadwinner, the man of the house, should work, do something, have him pick up garbage along the road or do something because he needs for his own uh, self-worth and everything else, he needs to be doing something. And it'll give, he'll be happier doing that, ultimately, than he would just getting charity. But in any event, that was Paul's word concerning charity. If they absolutely refuse to work, they absolutely refuse to, uh, or you absolutely refuse to feed them, right? So the work ethic is a correct one. There's nothing wrong with working. Secondly, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having things. In fact, I want you to look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just so you get a balanced perspective here. You never live for things. You never grab after things. You never worry about things. But it says in verse 10... For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing after it, stretching after it, or ego, to reach after, to stretch after, have wandered, have been led astray from the faith, and pierced them through with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God. And here's what you pursue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And so on. It goes through all of that. But then in verse 17, it says this. If you have the misfortune of being wealthy, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now I want you to understand that the word for rich means to have more. To have more than. How many of you tonight know of at least one person in this world that has less than you? Alright, then you're rich. If you, how many of you know of no one who has less than you? Some of you are tempted, but you're not going to get away with that. <laughs> Alright, I might, I might produce exhibit one, exhibit two, exhibit three up here. I think I could prove my point. The word means you have more than someone else. Okay? Now, if you have more than someone else, you are rich. So this is for you. Here's what it says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. That's a good place to start. No pride. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't get locked in on that. I heard the other day that either Hewlett or Packard, one of the two, in these days of the fluctuating stock market, they have made, or he, one of the, one of the people, has made over a billion dollars in the last year, just on the stock market. The other day when the thing went up 30 points, he made something like $200 million that day. Isn't that great? Don't 
Hope in uncertain riches. Don't fix your hope. The word hope, elpis, is a word which means a confident expectation. It means you go to the bank on it. It says, hope thou in me. Go to the bank on that. But don't go to the bank on riches. Don't stake your life on you having your bundle tomorrow. Okay? Good advice, isn't it? But, put your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Remember Paul said in Philippians 4? He says, I am content in what I have. He says, I've learned how to live prosperously. I've learned how to lose it all. I've lived both ways and it hasn't changed my contentment. Because I'm not content according to what I have. I am content in God. Right? I get my focus on Jesus Christ. It makes all the difference in the world. But listen now. He, when he had it, enjoyed it. And if you have it, for goodness sakes, enjoy it. You ought to be able to enjoy it as much as anyone, anyone can. And especially because you know it may not be there tomorrow. So enjoy it. Don't fix your hope on it, but enjoy it. God gave it to you. All right? You've heard me talk about that tremendous, tremendous tithe that they had in the Old Testament. I love that text. The book of Deuteronomy. God says, now what I want you to do is I want you to have this money laid aside. You've got to do it. It's a regulation. You've got to do it. And then God says, now, I want you to take that money and blow it on something you want. You can use it for a trip. You can use it for some trinket you don't need. You can use it any way you want. Because what I want you to do is every time you think of that, I want you to think of how good I am to you. That was one of the tithes of Israel. That kind of tithing isn't bad, you know. <laughs> Nevertheless, you're not to fix your hope on it. God gave it to you. Remember where it came from. Now, he doesn't quit there though. You're to enjoy it. But he's going to tell you how you can best enjoy it too. Okay? Instruct them to do good. Do good. Instruct them to be rich in good works. You can figure out some way to use that that God has given you so that you can be rich not only in wealth but you can do more good works than someone else because you've got more money than someone else alright to be rich in good works to be generous oh no that spoils the whole thing right generous and ready to share like the Philippian church did with Paul ready to communicate ready to give it to someone else to share it with someone else Look at verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Put it away for the future, but he's not talking about when you retire. He is talking about when we get to glory. You lay a foundation for that so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. The kind of, you can't take your money with you, but when you give it away down here with God's glory at stake, then you're going to have wealth and riches in glory. You're going to store it up there. You're going to discover that you never gave anything away. But what God gave it back with dividends that are unbelievable. 
I can't imagine how he is going to reward us when you think that God uses gold for asphalt. And he's not just going to give you a street of gold. See that guy that has been working for four years up in the Sierras? He finally found a chunk of gold. The gold in the nugget that he found worth about $11,000, but the nugget is so unusual that he probably will get about three to four times that. That's four years' work. Boy, what wages. guy is going to go another four years probably before he finds any more gold. But you know, he, he's, he's got it made, doesn't he? Or does he? What a waste, really, when you think of it. What a waste of a life. But you're going to have treasures in heaven beyond anything that you could ever imagine when you lay up in store in that way. Well, let's look a little further. Second Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Suffer hardship with me, Paul says, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You know, what we need to learn in our Christian life is this discipline of remaining disentangled. It's a good many years ago now that I uh, had a woman come up to me after I had spoken on the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, she was as sincere as sincere could be. And tragically, she was typical. When I share this, you'll chuckle. But when you get home and start thinking about it and looking around your house, you may realize that you're a whole lot like her. She said, do you really believe that Jesus Christ could come at any time? I said, absolutely. One of the very clear doctrines of Scripture is the doctrine of eminence. Christ could come at any time. There is nothing that needs to be fulfilled that has not been fulfilled before the rapture of the church. He could have come in Paul's lifetime. He could come in ours. He could come before this week is over. And in the light of that, we're to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're to comfort one another with these words. We're to encourage each other. And we are to assemble together more often realizing imminency. So much the more as you see the day approaching. There should be no excuse for Christians doing a whole lot of other things instead of coming together as often as possible to study God's Word and to learn more of Him and to grow in our Christian lives. After all, He could come at any moment. All right? She looked at me square in the eye and as sincere as sincere could be, she says, Oh, goodness, I hope he doesn't come until I finish my Civil War set. 
You can imagine, see? Her focus, where's her focus? Her focus has been on completing the silverware set. She suddenly has had a jar in her whole system of thinking. Christ could come before that project is done. What a tragedy that would be. That was when I told her, I said, you like silver better than gold? Well, gold, no, gold's worth more than silver. I said, God paves his streets with that stuff. He'll make you a gold one up there. But for goodness sakes, get your focus off of the things because they don't in that day mean two hoots. Let me throw another curve at you. I had a girl come up to me in a similar kind of a situation and say to me, I sure hope that Christ doesn't come until I get married. And why? She didn't have a boyfriend at the time, you know, but she had this vision, this hope of getting married. She said, well, the Bible says that in heaven there's going to be no marriage or giving in marriage. I said, do you understand what that means? Do you really understand what that means? It means that there is going to be such ecstasy in heaven, such glory, such manifest glory of the person of Jesus Christ, that things that we deemed important and wonderful and marvelous here, even things which God gave us here, Things like marriage and like children and like a happy home and all of these things. Those kind of things are going to be piddling nonsense compared to what we'll experience up there. Why does a person want to get married? Well, he wants to be happy, he wants to be satisfied, etc., etc., etc. One guy told me that he didn't know what happiness was till he got married. And then it was too late. And we got all these ideas of what marriage will do for us, you know. Well, hey, listen, I'm one of the guys about ready to celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary, and I'll tell you, marriage on earth is ecstasy. It's marvelous. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But I'll tell you this. If I understand my Bible right, those kind of joys and pleasures that I've enjoyed as a married man are nonsense compared to what I'll experience in glory. And it'll fade into oblivion. Do you think we're actually going to sit up there in heaven on the brink of eternity looking at Jesus Christ in the face and saying, hmm, I wonder what it would have been like if I could have gotten married before Christ came. Do you really think that? It'll be ridiculous. And listen, that's forever. That's forever. I tell you. We've got a lot to learn, don't we? Don't get entangled. Now, one other passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Had to come to this one sooner or later. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside, it's a word, that's the same precise word that we saw at the beginning of this series where we said we were to put off the old man with all of his desires and put on the new man. It's a word that means to put off like you would dirty clothes. You ever come home from a 
day where you've worked real hard and your clothes are stinky and sweaty and you just can't wait to get out of them and get into the shower. That's what it means. Strip them off. All right? Let's strip off every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 3 as well, for consider him, we get our word analogy from this Greek word, make an analogy, make a comparison. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin and so on. Now, this is a picture of a race. The emphasis is that you're to concentrate on fundamentals and essentials if you're going to run in a race. Did you hear yesterday this, this fellow Moses um, just was three-tenths of a, or, yeah, three-tenths of a second off of his world's record. It was a three-hundredths of a second off his world's record and the, at the, when he leaped out of, the, uh, out of the starting blocks, his shoe came untied, and he, he ran this thing in almost record time with his shoe flopping, and it was a hurdle race. You ever tried jumping a hurdle with shoes tied on? <laughs> Let alone with... Anyway, here's a guy who concentrates on the fundamentals, and he does not, he does not allow himself to be weighted down with the excess. The perishable is always the enemy of the permanent. It always is. We get our focus on that which is perishable, that which can be realized now, and it becomes a drag to us in our spiritual life. Paraphernalia. Anything that will hinder you in the race. Susanna Wesley said, whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience obscures your sense of God or takes off your relish for spiritual things, that is sin to you. Did you hear that? Listen again. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God or takes off your relish for spiritual things, that is sin to you. Is there anything like that? You ever notice in this day of so much um, flippant reading and so much spoon-fed stuff on television and all of the rest, you ever notice how tough it is to sit down and read a good, hard, difficult book? A book that makes you think, a book that stretches your brain. It's hard these days, hard to get children to think that way. They've had so much spoon fed to them. They're going to be they're going to be the poorer for it in later years if they don't learn to read difficult stuff now. Things that make them think cuz down the line they're going to need it. Well, in any event, in this text, it's based on the background of Hebrews chapter 11. There's a great cloud of witnesses. Cloud is the word nephos, which is a great mass of cloud covering the visible space of the, of the heavens. Uh, poetically, it was used for an innumerable host of people. 
And the witnesses, the word for witness, by the way, is the word martyrus. We get our word martyr from this word. It means one who testifies to that which he, which he knows to be true or that which he personally has seen. There's a common misconception that a martyr in the Bible is one who gave his life for Christ. Actually, he gave his life for Christ because he was a martyr. He witnessed to the death and resurrection of Christ and they killed him for it. The martyr idea is the witness, not the death. But we've, it's come to me now uh, to die for your faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul says concerning these Thessalonian Christians, you are witnesses in God, own, uh, God also uh, how holy and justly uh, and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. The word is martyr. You are a martyr. You're a witness. You're one who testifies to what you've seen. And the heroes of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews are the mass of martyrs. Uh, they testified to the, the victory that could come when a person had faith in God. And so the word is used uh, several times in that 11th chapter speaking of their witness. You discover a number of things about these men. You discover that they had conflicts. They were men of like passions like we. It was no easy street. G Jacob was a schemer until God met him at Peniel. Moses was presumptuous and fearful and angry. And yet God used him in a marvelous way. Samson was a failure in his moral life, as we saw a few weeks ago. Uh, they, they had conflicts, but they also had conquests. And uh, they learned to walk by faith and not by sight. It was by faith that Abel offered a sacrifice. It was by faith that Enoch pleased God. It was by faith that Noah prepared an ark. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed and sojourned and looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and so on. And God in mercy, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, did not record the failures of these men, the conflicts in their lives, but rather he... He recorded in grace all of those things that they achieved. And the thing that, is aware, that you become aware of as you look through that list and as you compare the Old Testament stories is that the Lord will fight for you. He'll do that if you'll let him. Uh, fear not, he said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Do you remember the backdrop of that particular uh, story? Abraham had taken his troops and gone out and rescued Lot and his family. And in the process, he had, he had received a, a great uh, bounty, a great booty uh, from the enemy. He had defeated them utterly. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who also were taken captive, uh, said to Abraham, Abraham, you, you, you uh, let us go and let your nephew Lot go. And you keep all of this that the enemy had stolen from us. You, you keep that as your reward. Abraham said, well, let my servants take what they want. But as for me, I wouldn't take a shoe latchet from you for anything in the world. I don't want any of you pagans thinking you made Abraham rich. And I don't want anything from you. Now that was quite a sacrifice because the spoil of war always belonged to the victor. And it wasn't as though he didn't deserve it. He had earned it. But considering the source and considering the things and considering the fact that Abraham had pledged himself in obedience to God and, and trusting him for his daily supply, Abraham said, I wouldn't even take a shoelace from you. 
I don't want things. I want God. And God appears to him right on the heels of that and says, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And you don't clutter yourself up with things. God will show you that he can be the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of one whose heart is perfect toward him. You say, oh, he's looking for perfect people. The word is shalom. He's looking for shalom people. Shalom means full, complete, wholeheartedly would be a good translation of it. Shalom means peace because factions are brought together in wholeness. The same word is used when the Israelites were told to take 12 whole stones and build an altar. 12 shalom stones. What God is looking for are men and women who have no ties to anything but Him. Their apron strings are not hooked to things. Their eyes look only to Him. Their hands work only for Him. Their feet go where He directs. Their life is whole. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You do that, what have you got left? Nothing. So you see, there's nothing left with which you can worship things. There's no, no strings left that are not attached to God. So not, there can be no attachment to the things of the earth. There is no entanglement in these things. And that's precisely what he means then when he says that there are two areas of entanglement, two areas of paraphernalia. There is sin, which does so easily beset you, and there is the weight. The sin which does so easily beset you is, 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 are those sins which are cleverly placed around you, the snaring things in your life. It might be any sin, but in the context here, in all likelihood, it's referring to the to one of the chief of all sins. Unbelief. Since the ch previous chapter is faith, and since faith, it's, without faith it is impossible to please God, probably the direct reference in this way is pointing out that though this could be any sin that so easily beset you, the subtle sin that Satan would like to grip us with is unbelief. And I'll tell you something, it is that which keeps you tied to things. If everything was stripped from you tomorrow, could you believe God for your next meal? You'd be forced to. But the point is that with the things still intact, do you count on the job to supply what you need or do you count on God? Do you live by faith or do you live by sight? When you give to God, do you give as He prompts you or do you give saying, let's see now, I don't know whether I can afford to give this month. God is blessing you so abundantly how can you afford not to give? Where's the faith? 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Hebrews 4.11, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. The biggest problem the nation of Israel had was they get in a jam and they could not believe God. They had to use every human device first. And when they wore out their human devices, had no resources left, then they began to trust God. Remember the demonic boy in Matthew 17. They couldn't cast him out because of unbelief. We can so often be guilty of unbelief. But then there's this encumbrance, this weight, this weight that's used in two ways in the uh, Greek literature. It's used concerning superfluous flesh. That's a nice way of saying fat. And it is also used to speak of a training device that would weigh the runner down while he was training and then they would be removed for the race. In all likelihood, this is the way it's used here. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing clothes. The Greek runner did not wear anything except for one thing. Anybody know what it was? The only thing that the Greek runner wore was a thin coat of oil. That's all. Other than that, he was totally stripped. Not even a loincloth, all right? And the reason was because that left him unencumbered in the winning of the race. Whatever you may think of that morally is beside the point. The, the thing here is not a moral issue. It is a fact. That's the way the Greek run runner ran. It, was, it enabled him to be as fast as the wind. And I think that, that it, it speaks to us so very clearly. My friend, we are in a race. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of these fellows have proved what can happen when you will strip yourself bare and will run that race with patience. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher. And it's high time that we wake up to the fact that we are in a race and we need to... We need to get rid of these things that are just weighting us down. That is, in the race, as we are involved in that race, that we never have an attachment to those things. That there be no entanglement. Because paraphernalia can do a number of things. It can drag us down. It can keep us from doing our best. That's what David said about Saul's armor. Remember, in 1 Samuel 17, Saul says, Here, you're going to fight Goliath, put on this armor. And remember what David said? David said, that's just in the way. Just be in the way. He said, this armor is not proved. <laughs> I'd rather go with a slingshot in the Lord than with a heavy armor. It drags us down. Secondly, it deviates our interest. Remember when Christ called in the Gospels these individuals? In fact, man said, I can't follow you. Well, I bought a pair of oxen and I have to take them on a test drive. Imagine buying them first and then going for a test drive. The other guy, you know, you can understand him. I've married a wife and therefore cannot come. But the guy with the oxen, the other fellow said, I got a piece of land, I got to go see it. He bought it through one of these want ads, you know, in the, in the travel magazines. It's out in the middle of the Arizona desert. He's going to go see it. 
things that distract us. How many times have you thought in terms of coming to prayer meeting on a Wednesday night or coming to a Sunday night service or even a Sunday morning service and the thing that kept you from coming were only material things. Just things. They deviate our interest. They dissipate our energy. We waste our time with all of those things so that we don't have any energy left so often to do the things of the Lord. And fourthly, they deaden our perception. We can no longer perceive when we're focusing on earthly things. Like, remember Pilgrim's Progress, the mud raker? The muck raker, I should say. The muck raker. What are you doing? Raking muck? Well, don't you see? There's the celestial city. No, can't see anything except the muck. That's what people are doing today. They have no vision of glory. They are not able to look at the things which are not seen. They are not able to seek the things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. They are so cotton-picking, occupied with things. They can't think of anything else. Their perception is gone. Don't let it happen to you. Rather, look away to Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Four quick illustrations. First of all, Gehazi. Remember in the story of Elisha? Naaman the leper was made whole. He offered goods to Elisha, and Elisha said, no way. Gehazi said, what a dumb thing. He went chasing after Naaman, and he ended up with the leprosy. He had the things, but he also had the leprosy. Elisha says, go ahead, keep your, keep your things. Keep them. Enjoy them, because you're going to die from leprosy. Slow and painfully. Second illustration. Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The gravitational pull of the world kept this man from being what he could have been for God. That's the epitaph on his grave. Having loved this present world. Third, the rich young ruler, which I mentioned earlier. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. There's a real danger, isn't there, when you're asked to teach that Sunday school class to say, no, I, I, I really can't do that. I'm so busy at, at work. And you go away sorrowful because... You've got great possessions. My business is occupying too much of my time. I, I just can't do those things anymore. Huh. Where's our value system? The last illustration is out of Africa. You know how they catch monkeys in Africa? Maybe you've heard me tell this story to children. It's one of my favorites. Do you know how they catch monkeys in Africa? The children catch monkeys. 
live monkeys. They take a coconut and they hollow it out inside and they have a little hole in each end. They stake it to the ground and inside that little hole, inside the hollow coconut, they put a peanut. The monkey will come along, stick his hand inside, grab the peanut, and he's caught. Now, being wise, you know that all he has to do is let go of the peanut, and he can easily get away. Guess what? He never does. And that paraphernalia traps him. And that night for supper, some African little boy has roast monkey for supper. You say, what a dumb animal. Oh, really? What's your peanut that you won't let go of? Some thing, right? I could never go to the mission field. I I could never teach it. I could never preach. I could never do this. I could never do that. Because you've got a hold of some paraphernalia. And you can't let go. And you're trapped. No man that wore it entangleth himself with paraphernalia that he may please him who hath called him to be a soldier. You ready to let go of something tonight? I hope so. Thank you, Father, for what you're teaching us in these days. Help us, Lord, just to learn these things and to learn them well. We just pray that you will help that in all of this matter of paraphernalia that will hang onto you and let go of the things of this world that are passing away. Help us to do the will of God which endures forever. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.